Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Dr. David Morehouse. Uh, we're going to talk about the quantum mechanical background uh, regarding remote viewing. Um, so with that, David, uh, how, how does remote viewing work at the from a quantum mechanical perspective? Sure. Um, for your listeners, uh, what we're trying to do here is take quantum mechanical interpretations of, of human consciousness. Uh, because one of the things that we're doing as remote viewers, uh, when we're teaching remote viewing, is we want to make sure that students coming in are not accepting the protocols of remote viewing for just simply face value. You could do that in the vast majority, if not all of my former colleagues approach it in that way. But I have uh, almost since day one, when I started teaching remote viewing was to try to answer the questions that were not answered for me when I was being trained as a remote viewer back in the unit in the, in the, in the 80s. <clears throat> that has been uh, a sorted path to walk. And the reason why is this, back in the, in the 80s and back in the 90s, and even at the point when I started to teach this, there were a lot more esoteric perspectives dealing with quantum mind. And there were not a lot of new versions and explanations of quantum mechanics coming out. And I don't necessarily know why, except I would posit that perhaps it is because uh, people crossing the millennial threshold were looking for more than just uh, a spiritual leader making some comment and passing their arm over the equation and everybody then jumping to it, which that was certainly uh, things that, that was something that I started to see manifesting uh, by uh, the mid 1990s. I'll, and I'll tell you where, you know, when I, uh, my first book that I told you, which is extraordinarily boring book, and I don't recommend anybody buy it, which is Non-Lethal Weapons War Without Death. That book uh, got me invited to the Mikhail Gorbachev Foundation State of the World Forum, the very first, and I, I don't know if they ever did it again, but in 1996. <clears throat> and in that, um, there were these large gatherings for all meals. And in that, I actually uh, was, for the first time, heard uh, Deepak Chopra, Dr. Deepak Chopra talk. And I have since come to know him and, and like him and I, we taught a class together. We taught several remote viewing classes together. And when I say by together, I mean that he would come in and introduce and introduce me and introduce what I was doing and introduce why he liked it. Uh, and this was primarily to his following of people at the Chopra Center in La Jolla and then uh, in La Costa, uh, California. <clears throat> and my, but my first time hearing someone step up as, in his case, a medical professional and taking uh, scientific explanations for how we are and how we exist and how we think and way, entirely new ways of looking at how we interact as human beings and why from a, from a medical and scientific perspective. That was the first time I'd ever heard anything like that done. Uh, 
I don't think anybody else up to that point had ever attempted to do that. Prior to that point in time of him kind of building that bridge, there were, everybody tried to stay in their own separate camps. So if you're really talking about, you know, uh, metaphysical esoteric pursuits, then you were, you were talking at a different community level than what you were talking about from those who came from science backgrounds and tried to look at the world through a scientific lens or that kind of a lens of expectation, if you will. <clears throat> it was kind of inspirational to hear him talk about the things he talked about. And there, I cannot say that there was any kind of a parallel between the two of us, but certainly I felt a connection to his way of explaining the world and, and our, our walk in this life in such a way that he was able to enthrall an audience that was filled with political leadership, uh, spiritual leadership, scientific leadership, military leadership uh, from all over the world, whoever you know, were invited and came to that from past and present presidents of the United States to great spiritual leaders like the Dalai Lama on down <clears throat> with, of course, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, being the name, you know, the namesake for this, for this, uh, uh, this, this group to be there to discuss uh, the world and how we were going to move forward. Now that the Soviet Union was gone, how were we going to move forward in a more positive way? Uh, I was there to talk about alternative methods of conflict resolution. That's when I heard him, which most people would say Morehouse, alternative methods of conflict resolution. Uh, that, yeah, that's, uh, that, could be, that could be argued whether or not I could do that. Anyway, it was an interesting experience, uh, both spiritually, creatively, <clears throat> and hearing someone coming from his background blending uh, the mystic and the science and, and the spiritual coming from India uh, and, and presenting that to these people. I will assure you, absolutely, people in that gathering hung on his every word. And people walked out inspired. And even though I know that there are people who, who quibble over with what he says or who they might think he is or other things. I, I have physicians that work for me that I know um, some of them don't even know who he is and others will know who he is and quibble over it and others will know who he is and say, yeah, cool for him kind of a thing. So he was one of the people that gave me my first ideas that this could be explained in this way. But now that is all taken off in the last 25 24, 25 years, and there are all kinds of amazing theoretical physicists who are coming forward and helping to bridge this gap that humans have over what is the quantum mechanical explanations for how human beings act or, or are able to access information in quantum mind, in consciousness, and how is that shared, et cetera, and what are the limits of it? It's interesting. So, what I would like to share with uh, your listeners is, is simply some of, the, some, some of the, the notions, the interpretations, the examples uh, that I use in the classes. I call a great deal on 
the teachings of a uh, an old Jewish physicist by the name of Itzhak Bentov. And why do I use Itzhak Bentov? Because he was really clever in taking quantum mechanical concepts and interpretations. And for the first time, taking them and bringing them in a lay perspective so that anyone off the street could look at that and listen to what or read his writings and understand concepts of physics that would prior to that particular moment not have been with it unless you were trained as a physicist you would not have understood you know what what they were talking about there uh I also tell people that a lot of these new concepts are really easily attainable and understandable in something like Scientific American. Scientific American is high school level science and it's, it's so they make an effort to take these research, this research and take it down so that a high school level person taking science or biology would be able to understand that and, and even more. So calling upon those those as well as a bunch of uh, theoretical physicists whom i love and i'll mention some names uh, in the next segments of this i want to show you or give you the examples of what we talk about in remote viewing class to help remote viewers coming in from all walks of life engineering medicine law enforcement military and everything else down from that uh, be it esoteric or not how they're able to do or why we believe that they are able to do what they're able to do. I don't want them to just say, I did what Dave said and it worked, or I did what Dave said and it didn't work. I want them to understand this gift that they have and what that means and how it's explained in physics. Because physics is the science that would be applied to the understanding of this. Okay, so... <clears throat> You've probably heard me in the other segments uh, talking about the waveform expressions of things. And I wanted for just for a moment to, to talk about in particle wave theory, where does this waveform exist? Because if everything is energy and energy is everything and therefore everything can be expressed as waveform on sub, some level, what the heck does that mean? When I'm sitting at a desk and a computer in front of me and screens, et cetera, what does that mean? Where's the waveform in that? Aside from the fact that to give perfect examples uh, in the physical world in which we exist is that these, these instruments, these organs called eyes allow us to detect and decode and objectify the waveform expression of light all around us. That's how they work. Light comes to us as photons at different length, at different wavelengths, and these instruments pick those up, focus that to the retina in the back, and the rods and cones there interpret that light. So, detecting and decoding that light into an electrochemical waveform, which is an electrochemical response, which is sent down the optic nerve into the brain. And the brain objectifies that for us. <clears throat> that happens at any time that you are sighted and have your eyes open. And when you close your eyes, there is still that persistence of vision ongoing, meaning that the waveform expression 
that you have just uh, perceived, that you have just detected and decoded into an electrochemical response is still being processed by the brain or by the retina. So that's just a simple example of what goes on in the physical world. Here's another one. You have these instruments and organs called, or organs called ears, and the same thing is going on there. You're hearing me and you're hearing me through speakers, but how that sound is getting obviously is in waveform. So it's coming as a waveform and my voice is different than Sean's as different from somebody else's. And it is easily recognized as his waveform voice imprint as my waveform voice imprint. And they even now in law enforcement are able to detect stress in voice through voice analysis, uh, stress, uh, deception, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, even to certain degrees, according to the FBI, they can even measure just in the waveform expression of voice and the analysis that can be pro provided, the algorithms that can be applied to it. They can determine aspects of personality from that just in how it's coming across uh, on uh, and being able to be detected and then decoded algorithmically and objectified, handed back to uh, the investigator. So you are constantly in the process of detecting, decoding, and objectifying waveform expressions of things in this life, even tactile to a certain degree, like touching something with your hand that you find to be cold. At the subatomic level, at the quantum level, uh, <clears throat> at a molecular level, uh, you are, when you touch something cold, the reason that it is feeling cold to you is because there is a sharing of molecules back and forth there. So uh, there's a piece of you that is, that is in exchanging with whatever that surface is, which gives you that sense of cold or that sense of heat. Uh, same when you walk out into the daylight sun and it is hot, there is a waveform expression of that radiant heat, that temperature, that thermal quality there it's a waveform expression. You're not being clearly burned by the gases of the sun. You are being burned by a waveform expression of those gases from the sun. So that is a tactile expression of detect, decode, and objectify of waveform. Uh, in <clears throat> hearing again, you're hearing and the cochlea and hammer of the stirrup are again forming uh, based on the vibration in the fluid and all of the, the, the cilia inside of the cochlea, they are all forming electrochemical responses that are, that is the decoding process that is then sent into the brain through the auditory nerve, which is then, uh, it is objectified into sound. Pleasant sound, not so pleasant sound, loud sound, not so loud sound, right? It is, minimizing to a certain degree, but it's exactly what's happening. So we are instruments walking and moving through the physical world that are constantly in the process of detecting, decoding, and objectifying waveform expressions of things. Now, <clears throat> this idea that this waveform exists everywhere, uh, what's the thought experiment that we can create for that? So there's a science, there is a statement that's put out in quantum mechanical 
uh, interpretations of the atom, if you will, which does not follow the classic Rutherford model that came out of classic uh, physics, where you see this little nucleus and electrons spinning around it, right? Uh, that in quantum mechanical physics does not exist. That Rutherford model is uh, false. It doesn't exist that way. Uh, it doesn't have that kind of a construct. Now, but what I want to do is get your, your head wrapped around this idea of 99.9% .9 space, which is a quantum mechanical perspective of the world around us, saying that everything, the chair you're sitting in, the desk in front of you, everything, including you, and all life around you and all inanimate objects around you are 99.9% .9 space. That is a bizarre concept. Not so bizarre, maybe when put into this, uh, into this framework. So if I were to ask you, how many atoms in an orange? You would really have no way to create a thought idea of that, some concept around that. You may be able to come up with an estimated number, you know, 10 to the whatever, and, and, and say it that way, but that doesn't help. We're trying to come up with an idea for everyone listening here, uh, not just a physicist or somebody else, uh, what this 99% space, 99.9% .9 space means. <clears throat> so atoms in an orange, I, you would have to blow this orange up to the size of planet Earth. So now if you're standing on this orange, which is the size of our planet, you would be able to find the atoms that make up that orange at that scale. They would appear as grapes, okay? At the, about this time in class, sometimes somebody will raise their hand up and go, Concord grapes are the little tiny champagne grapes. Damn it, doesn't matter. Grapes, just it's a thought experiment, okay? Uh, orange, size of planet Earth, atoms now are the size of grapes, okay? So now, if I were to try to get you to find the nucleus and or the electrons in that atom, which is the size of a grape, could you do it? No not in a thought experiment. So in order to do that, you would actually have to take that grape and blow it up to the size of an indoor sports arena. Let's say like the, Dal like the Astrodome, okay? If you blew up the grape to the size of the Astrodome, theoretically, you would find the nucleus, which would be the size in perspective, right? To the Astrodome. Theoretically, the size one dried pea casts somewhere radically, right? Just chaotically into this astrodome. astrodome. And if I ask you to find the, uh, the electrons that would be paired with that particular uh, atom, what would they be in scale to this? Theoretically, they would be the scale of grains of sand. Grains of sand around a small dried pea inside the astrodome. So what's between grains of sand, small dried pea, and the space to the exterior of the astrodome? Space. 
that that's the point of this thought experiment that it is like space and what is that space filled with grains of sand small dried peas being a nucleus and electrons constituting an atom no that's not what it's saying it's a thought experiment so what it's essentially saying to you is that from the macro level down to the cellular level down to the molecular level down to the atomic level down to the subatomic level what is there that makes up and can be described used to describe the physical world space 99.9 percent .9 space if that in that thought experiment is the replication of every atom in you know that makes up every molecule at every subatomic level going the other direction is 99.9% .9 space. That's how that is understood in the world of quantum mechanical physics. So what's that space filled with? It's filled with waveform because we already established that the Rutherford model of electrons spinning around the nucleus that we all were taught in college and high school and etc that is untrue that's a false model so it doesn't exist as grain like grains of sand or electrons spinning around the nucleus it actually now averts to or reverts over to this particle wave theory which i've shared with you already which is <clears throat> When observed or measured, things can be established as a position. When no longer observed, it collapses back into waveform. When observed again or measured, it, it coalesces back up into another position. When not observed, when the measurement stops, it collapses back into waveform. So this 99.9% .9 space that makes up everything around us at the atomic subatomic level exists in waveform until observed or measured. It's always in waveform. That's how it exists. And that is the way in which we understand the quantum mechanical world around us. Space filled with waveform and uh, we exist in waveform on some level we're sitting here now, but on in the subatomic atomic level, we are represented as waveform. Uh, if we are represented as waveform, then we exist within a, a sea of waveform, which is going to bring me to the next point, and we can continue rolling on this. I want to, <clears throat> I want to now take this ninety nine point nine percent space and this concept of waveform. Because you've heard me several times here use these words omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, uh, and eternal as an additional qualifier there. But, and I've said that if it is holographic or not holographic, but it is omnipresent <clears throat> because it travels by every possible path, well, what does that mean to us as an individual standing here or an individual standing in the next room or an individual standing? Uh, halfway around the world, or at the top of the world, the bottom of the world, or off world, what does that mean? Well, the guy that, that posited one of the greatest explanations, which is why in the lexicon of remote viewing, you hear this term, holographic matrix field. 
<clears throat> now holographic matrix field re refers to the concepts and the experimentation and the you know the writings of Itzhak Bentov. He wrote a book once upon a time called Stalking the Wild Pendulum. Excellent book. I cannot tell you the number of physicists who have come into some of my lectures and come up afterward and said, you know, I read that book. I read that book and it was that book that said, made me want to be a physicist. I, I love it. Uh, it. It was that book that made me want to be a physicist, although I was well past my sell-by date to be one. So uh, I just love the book. So I'm going to share with you another thought experiment <clears throat> that requires two artificial aspects to make it happen. One is there is no gravity in this experiment. I'll explain why. And two, uh, when I say that a particular body of water is going to be frozen, it, it's frozen. <clears throat> so if I talk to you about the creation of a hologram before I get into that thought experiment, most people have no idea how a hologram is made. It's really made with coherent light and it's made with, it's made with light that is uh, chaotic and light that is still coherent. And it is how this light is lensed and reflected around and how, you know, there's a reference beam and a non-reference beam and how those beams, which have disrupted light and the other, which is coherent light. Coherent light is like a concentrated stream of electrons guided by a self-generated electromagnetic force, uh, which could be like a high-powered microwave or it could be a laser. Um, <clears throat> a laser in this example is what's used to make a hologram. One, they, a, sh a shot of a laser goes to a beam splitter. When it hits the beam splitter, it splits off. Uh, when one, which is called the reference beam, it simply goes over and it hits a reflective mirror and it comes back over and it hits the photo, the holographic photo plate, okay? The other beam splits off, goes through a lens which distorts the waveform. It's no longer coherent. And that disrupted light hits a subject, like let's say a, a human form, <clears throat> and then it bounces off of that onto the photo, the holographic film. Now, that holographic film, the way it was just made with two, a reference beam and the non-reference beam, it makes a hologram. And a hologram in literal form means that if you pick up that holographic film and were to break a corner of that holographic film off, and then shine the reference beam in the back or the non-reference beam in the back. Don't quote me on forward or backwards, but both beams are shined from one end and the other end. What happens is the hologram that is contained in that photograph, that holographic film presents itself outside. And it's not a portion of the hologram, it's the entire hologram. That's how a hologram is made. So it means that the waveform expression of that image is contained anywhere within that film. So now let's go to Itzhak Bentov's uh, explanation, which I hope you'll like that better. <clears throat> if I have a body of water, remember no gravity, and uh, I have to be able to freeze it when I wanna freeze it. Say I got a body of water. 
let's say it's an above ground swimming pool. Uh, make it whatever size you want to be, want it to be. If I pick up different objects laying around at my feet, let's say I pick up a Tonka toy from my child, from a child, and I toss it into the pool. The mass, the density, the texture, meaning the shape, the velocity and the angle of entry of that object thrown into the pool will create a distinctive waveform unique to that object. It's not, it's not a general waveform. It's unique to that object based on mass, density, texture, meaning shape in this case, and the angle of entry as well as the velocity with which it's thrown or tossed. Because there's no gravity in this example, that waveform now, when it hits, it comes out in concentric rings and it will go hit the sides of that swimming pool, right? And when it hits the sides, it reflects or rebounds back and it will keep coming back and forth and back and forth because there's no gravity. That waveform will stay as is in its amplitude and its frequency and it will keep hitting. But as it keeps hitting over time, let's say 60 seconds, what starts to happen is it begins to intermingle, right? That waveform is everywhere because it's hitting, reflecting, it's coming back and crossing and blending and still going the other direction and crossing and blending. Uh, and that's what will happen to it. Now I pick up a football, shall we say. Oh, no, that won't be good. It floats. I'll pick up a giant piece of cinder, cinder block and I toss that in. The exact same algorithm applies. The mass, the density, the texture, the angle of entry, and the velocity with which I throw it will all be manifest in the waveform expression of that object as it goes into the water. Now, I have a cinder block waveform <clears throat> different from the waveform of the Tonka truck, and it is doing exactly the same thing. It is now instantly blending with the other object's waveform. It hits the sides of the pool and bounces back again, right? And it keeps coming back and forth until both of those waveform expressions are completely saturated in this body of water. Now, if I pick up another object, a stone and throw that in, if I pick up a plate and throw that in, if I pick up anything and throw it in, Everything I throw in creates its own unique waveform based on the mass, density, texture, angle of entry, and the velocity of entry. All of that is translated into the amplitude and frequency of that wave. Now, if I've got eight or 10 things in there that are now intermixed, each one gets 60 seconds to completely saturate itself around the pool, that waveform expression can be found where? Where I threw it in? No, it's everywhere in the pool, in that body of water, because the waveform is not dissipating, it's there. Now, if I were to take that body of water and freeze it instantly, that waveform, all of those waveforms would be frozen instantly in position. If I were to stand that body of water up and hit it with a sledgehammer and it fractured into a million pieces. If I picked up the smallest of shards, would the waveform expression 
of all of the objects that I threw into that pool be contained in that shard? Yes. That body of water would represent what in Itzhak Bentov's terms were a holographic matrix field. Matrix field, long before the movie The Matrix was ever even considered, okay? <clears throat> Which was actually a movie about the second coming of Christ, according to the, the person who actually wrote it. That's what it was about. Uh, so the holographic matrix field is referring to what we exist in as human beings. That waveform expression that I said uh, that we all are at this atomic, subatomic level, this quantum level, that waveform expression that fills that 99.9% .9 space of all things, that it is all expressed as waveform. Now you should connect the dots of it, we exist in a holographic matrix field. It means that it is not about projecting somewhere, projecting consciousness somewhere, or doing something like, it's not that at all. It is simply opening a lens, opening an aperture, tuning into a particular wave of frequency, like in remote viewing, looking, you're trying to find a target gestalt, which would be represented in the holographic matrix field as itself and all of its, the aspects of that gestalt. It's not about you going there. We, we use that as a thought experiment. You're not projecting somewhere. Even the old you know, description of remote viewing, which was to transcend space-time, you're not transcending space-time. You are detecting and decoding a waveform expression of something that exists within the holographic matrix field that is omnipresent, as are you. It's omnipresent, means right here around you right now. So all the coordinates in that theory, all you're doing with that is accessing somebody's concept of that gestalt, the principal element of that gestalt, and detect, decode, objectify, detect, decode, objectify the waveform expression of what is there, which in remote viewing is broken down into natural man-made, right, into colors, textures, temperatures, tastes, sounds, smells, energetics, dimensionals, and into, uh, and temperatures, if I didn't say that, and into aesthetic data, emotional data, intangible data, and it is all captured verbally so that it can be manifest physically. I mean, visually, that's what you're doing with that. The verbal supports the visual or prompts the, the visual, the visual supports and prompts the verbal. So that's a holographic matrix field. Uh, that is how the waveform expression of all things exists within the physical universe, within the physical universe and beyond, right? There, as I said earlier, there is no known understanding or reason or laws of the universe that would say that waveform expression would stop somewhere. So again, to reiterate what we said in the last segment, it means then that you Truly, if you are willing to tune to that and to develop or use a protocol to get to that, you have access to the waveform expression of all things, all thoughts, all matter, all life, all life forms, all concepts, all anything without restriction, no matter where that might be. And you can understand that you are there as, a, as an omnipresent 
waveform expression of yourself there. Now, let me take it another level. Itzhak Bentov, again, along with some others, uh, <clears throat> came up with this concept about uh, how waveform exists within our lives and how it can possibly influence or we influence it. On the surface of the earth, there was a negative ionic charge. Uh, beginning 80 kilometers out uh, at the bottom of the ionosphere, which I know goes up and down depending on certain uh, factors, temperature-wise, et cetera, uh, it has a positive ionic charge. So negative ionic charge and a positive ionic charge in a closed cell all the way around, even though there be changes in elevation for that, that positive ionic charge, that doesn't mean anything. What means something is that you have a closed encirclement of negative and positive. That forms a capacitor, a perfect capacitor in electrical engineering, right? It's what does a capacitor do? It stores energy. So Bentoff back in the 60s was already throwing this idea out there that said, let me see, he called us all uh, raisins in jello. Uh, and so we are in the medium of jello as his thought experiment. And why was that important? Is because he was saying that. Aside from all the waveform expression of all things that are naturally occurring within the physical universe, uh, what about all the man-made waveforms, uh, artificial waveforms that we put out there? For example, does emotion carry, can it be expressed as a waveform? Well, certainly it can. Why would it not? If you're thinking a thing or feeling a thing, it, can, it is a man, it can be, it can and will be a manifest expression in waveform. You could articulate it, then it would definitely be waveform. Uh, you could write it and then somebody could read your writing and how they perceive it by looking at it from a pad of paper, that's a waveform expression that now it impacts them. But Itzhak was saying that, okay, so in this perfect capacitor, we have all of these generation capabilities of things like microwave and uh, you know, television, we have uh, cell phones, we have <clears throat> power generation capabilities, we have uh, police radios, local radios, international radios. I mean, the list goes on, right? Anything generating a waveform expression of something uh, is generating a waveform expression that does what? It bounces inside that capacitor. So his point in bringing this up is to say that we as human beings, not only are we omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent within this uh, understanding of the 99.9% .9 space in which waveform is filled, uh, in which we are waveform uh, at this subatomic level, and that we are also creating all of these other expressions of waveform, does that have an effect, adverse or positive, on humanity? Well, his position, without actually saying it, was that be guarded human beings, because uh, as you continue to generate certain frequencies artificially, that there is an effect on humanity, because those, those frequencies, when they combine in such a way as they create what is called uh, a, a 
a destructive waveform interference, meaning it is so significant in amplitude, meaning it's, it's strength, and so significant in frequency, meaning the cycles per second that it has, that it can begin to entrain other things. This goes back to his, we're just raisins in the jello. So when certain things then in this jello inside the capacitor, we humans as raisins and all other life forms, we will be forced to entrain or resonate with uh, this other waveform expression of things. How can you stop that? Can you stop that? Well, some people will say you can't stop it. I will say to you, and I think he would have said to you, of course you can stop it. It is a matter pretty much of understanding that it's part of the reality, but what are you going to do to control your environment to try to make sure that you're not affected by those kinds of things and uh, to try to be responsible for your resonant resonant frequency in the moment for yourself, what we were kind of talking about uh, previously. <clears throat> and it means that the only thing you're in control of as a raisin in this jello or in this capacitor, uh, despite all of these cell phone calls that are going through you right now, all these text messages, all these emails being sent, all this wireless, Bluetooth, uh, everything going on around you, the lights, the the uh, police radios, they don't stop outside on the street. They're going through you right now. All the ham radio transmissions, all the military traffic, uh, foreign and domestic is going through you right now. Those waveforms do not stop. They are there. Maybe they're not in a level because somebody said to me once in a class, well, wait a minute, then how do you, what do you mean about the range of a, ra of a radio? The range of the radio is determined particularly by either line of sight, but also the sensitivity of the, the equipment designed to detect, decode that frequency. So whether or not the instrumentation on the receiving end of it has the ability to continue to detect a wave over time, right, as it, as it diminishes in some fashion, that is not pertinent to this question. The issue is that the waveform, even if it becomes in a diminished state, it's still moving through you and it will continue to move through you indefinitely, theoretically. So again, are we polluting our environment to the point that we can't control it? Some will say, yes, I'm gonna tell you again uh, that I will believe that only if we surrender to that and say, we're not responsible. Uh, should we try to do certain things to protect ourselves from the waveform express these artificial expressions of waveform? Uh, yeah, I believe we should. How do you do that? There are lots of ways. Um, there are lots of ways. And, and some, one of the ways is to also control the messages that come to you, right? Don't watch the news. Don't look at things that are being generated by those things where if the waveform expression of something is hitting me from a newscast that I know if I were watching it would piss me off, or disrupt, disrupt my day and my sense of balance and well-being, and I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about this, I'm trying to say to you that understand the physics of consciousness as I do, and I understand it. It means that if I allow, if I connect with that waveform, now it does more damage than it would have if I had just unconsciously been standing in it and it was moving around me, 
if I connect with it, where I start detecting and decoding it and objectifying it in relation to my life and my physical world, that's when it becomes disruptive. That's when it has the ability to entrain me, to cause me to start resonating with it. Why? Because I made a conscious effort looking at it. It's difficult, even in constructive waveform interference and destructive waveform interference, for something to entrain you if you do not connect with it. If you stay isolated and focus on your frequency, then you can control the emotion or other things where you're going to be in your particular frequency. It sounds ridiculous, but it is, it is the physics explanation for what every spiritual teacher has ever been trying to get across to humanity about you know, the significance of the moment and being present and what that means that you can allow the world to decide what you're going to be because of your interaction with it or participation with it or not. <clears throat> Someone once did a waveform, I may have said this to you, did a waveform uh, capture of World War I. So it's an amazing thing. I'll give it to Sean so that he can post it. There was a waveform expression of World War I right up to the ceasefire armistice. And you can see this chaotic, high amplitude, super high frequency waveform over being mapped over time. And then when the, the ceasefire happened for the armistice, it goes down to an, a flat line across the bottom. I mean, it's almost imperceivable. If you had the ability to blow it up and look at it, which the instrumentation in those days was not that sophisticated, but if you had the ability to go down and look at what you see as a flat line, there would still be frequency and amplitude depicted there. But the frequency of war and the frequency of peace are two distinct things that you can then look at that and go, well, that makes sense, right? One is chaotic and violent uh, and spread out over a large piece of real estate over, you know, affecting people in around, not just on the battlefield, but affecting people everywhere. Where that was measured was in London. It was measured in London. Uh, so it's an interesting concept to, to understand about living within a holographic matrix field of understanding that all things are 99.9% .9 space, meaning uh, they are filled with waveform. They are not filled with particle, with waveform, uh, and that we have an ability to manage certain aspects of our environment that allow us to resonate how we choose to resonate, as opposed to how the world might try to get us to resonate. But understand, as, as Bentoff suggested, that we are all raisins and jello, and therefore, um, if it gets big enough and significant enough, like 20 years of war, uh, you know, that Sean fought in, I certainly didn't. And then now the world is at war again. Is there a cumulative effect or an individual effect on all of us within the holographic matrix field? Well, one would have to accept yes. And is there in the moment, which you've heard me talk about, stating again that all of those who understand the moment from a scientific perspective 
or even from a spiritual perspective, even from a, from a personal transformation perspective, that what will happen is if you do not take charge of that, that then you will begin to resonate. If you start to perforate your protective environment and let all that stuff in, that it will cause you to start to resonate. And also with that frequency, and also if you get tied up with and, and focused with and concentrated with the collective moment, because there is a collective global societal moment. Uh, Sean alluded to it. Uh, I talk about it all of the time. And that is these four turnings. You can read Strauss and how there are many, many, many more uh, readings that you can go on. They were the first guys to just codify it uh, and into an understandable lexicon. But it's been around since recorded, since recorded history, that humanity moves through these turnings, destructive, rebuilding, sustaining, unraveling, destructive. We are in a destructive phase. We are not out of it yet. Humanity is in charge of, as a global society, as a, as a, as a, a global moment, as a, you know, a, a, a humanitarian moment, if you will, not, uh, not just a single moment. It can and will, if you allow it, if you turn your attention to it, if you begin to allow to make it, make you resonate with it or allow it to, with its amplitude and its power. Uh, so is it important to disengage from that? I think yes, for your overall health and well-being and sense of well-being. And also uh, because you have to realize in something like that, and I will say this to you, is that the greatest spiritual teachers will say, not even understanding the scientific implications of this, they will say, uh, you're not responsible for that. You're, you can't change that. And the truth is, that's a correct statement. You can't change that. You can't change what's going on there. Now, could you be a purveyor of information? Could you, you know, pass it along? Yes, you can. Could you do it without getting any of it on you? Probably not. Probably not. And by getting any of it on you, I mean, picking up that kind of resonant frequency and being affected by it. So is it important for the global society to turn our heads away from it? No, that's not what I'm not. That's not what I'm trying to get you to understand. What I'm trying to get you to understand is uh, how the waveform expressions of things like yet another war and the involvement of the entire global society and how that is raising up in terms of its amplitude and its frequency, that of course you can get caught up into that. That is part of what is that change distribution when talking about the moment that happens. The thing that skews potentials from being part of your reality, from maybe one that you weren't expecting or it's less desirable than one that may have been lined up to become part of your reality, if you're following me on that. Uh, and your best bet and act of survival is take care of you, take care of the ones you love, take care of those things. And the theory is that if you do that, if you resonate powerfully in that way, and the people around you resonate powerfully in that way because of you, if the message you purvey to listeners, to onlookers, is a message of promise and possibility, a message of understanding what they're in charge of and what they're not, 
the theory is that that then can pick up its own powerful resonant frequency such that, remember, raisins in the gel, it can start to create a chain reaction when it, once it reaches a critical mass. Back in, uh, in fission theory, uh, critical mass is defined in, in lay terms, I think 10%. So if it's 10% of any given population, I know some have different uh, percentages on that, but 10% in any given population uh, is supposed to present, represent a, a critical mass. And a critical mass brings on a chain reaction. And that chain reaction means then you could, in, in that theory, uh, change the resonant frequency of what else is going on. It, it could, uh, it could, if you reach a critical mass of knowing, not believing, uh, that frequency could be powerful enough to start micro-adjusting and then, you know, intermediate adjustments and then maximum adjustments throughout elder elements of the global society. That can happen. If, if you don't believe that or don't ascribe to that, it's okay. I understand that. But Anyone that's involved in these things like remote viewing for the purposes of going from believing to knowing or people who are involved in it because they want to, they want to play a role in changing the ideology of a nation by changing the ideology of children to let them know that they are empowered beings, that they were, you know, gifted with, with abilities that were proven at SRI that have been proven scientifically in psych and in uh, uh, pediatric psychiatry elsewhere uh, have been talked about, have not been disputed, but the disputes are minor compared to the support for those ideas. That if you empower them with that, and we already talked about the neural capacity for, for memory of, of human beings, how far that is, right? One exabyte, up to one exabyte. And the expectation is going to go far more than that. Then, and we also know that it's been mapped cognitively that humans cognate faster than the known supercomputers in existence on the planet. Maybe not a quantum computer. I don't know. Uh, and as I said to you in the previous episode, that neuroscientists who are being honest about where the science is right now are saying we really have not even begun, you know, to crack the shell on what humans are capable of doing. And we don't really know or understand fully how humans cognate or how they store, but they are accepting these new ideas of, you know, paralleling storage to computers, et cetera. So those are some concepts that I wanted you to just understand about waveform, what it means when someone expresses the notion of a holographic matrix field, how you understand that we exist within a capacitor and we are still influenced and have access to the waveform expressions of things outside of our capacitor. And we, in our capacitor, can still influence and tie into the waveform. It, in other words, it's not completely stopped or contained by our capacitor. There has to be some that leaks out, but it doesn't seem to dissipate what's here. And are there ways for you to protect that? Yes. We discussed some of those. If you want to read more, or ask Sean to have me back, I would be happy to address other questions. Uh, there is also just the notion that if these waveform expressions exist in all things everywhere, then that 
is what we're talking about in your ability to access the waveform expression of other civilizations, of other lives, of other consciousness, uh, of other elements of consciousness and of other beings and their thoughts, uh, all those things. Does it require under our understanding of their language? No, why not? Because it's a waveform expression of something and it's going to be detected and decoded by our brain. And when it's detected and encoded by our brain, language is not an issue. That waveform expression will be interpreted on some level and your biological brain would toss that if it can't understand it fully, it will toss out other references for it. It will give you other ways in which to partially or almost, you know, maybe even fully to a certain extent, uh, what is being said, because it's a thought form, recognizing that some other life form might think differently than we do. There are still common elements like survival, uh, procreation, etc. Uh, that would be in those things that we'd be able to we'd be able to detect, decode, objectify, map, pattern, establish patterns, analyze patterns, etc. So I probably didn't want to talk about the fact that communicating with aliens. I just wanted to share that idea again with you about right. uh, there just are no limits to these understandings, these waveform expressions of things. Two two quick questions for you. Um, one, I'm going to go all the way back to something you said earlier. It's just more of a clarification. And then the second is a question that's, that was raised by something you said in a previous episode. So the first question is going back to World War I, you said when they measured the, you know, the, the structure of the waveform, what did they use to, what were the components of that waveform? Was it just like radio transmissions and traffic? Was it stock market yeah, it was, movements? It was, listening, uh, it was listening and it was almost a seismic rep representation of what was being heard. So it was the chaotic noise of conflict that was permeating clear across the channel. And it was being, it was being measured by, uh, you know, what, what kind of seismic measurement device would be available in, in, uh, in 1918, 19 or 19, right? It would be that. And uh, so, so, so they're like seismic, like as in like, minor perturbations and the shaking of the, the earth? Well, that's a good question. I don't know if it was measuring vibration and the earth from the chaos of conflict. Uh, my understanding of it when I was reading it, it was that it was measuring the sound of war. So it was measuring the sound of war as a frequency and, and, and presenting it as a frequency because it was measuring in cycles per second over time, and it was mm -hmm. also tracking amplitude. And yeah, it was uh, when I saw it, and I'm going to give it to you so you can you can put it up for the listeners. Uh, it it was a powerful thing to me to see that. It's like wow, it, it is. And if you then take think that was war on what we were calling a global scale, it wasn't uh, the war you fought in. Uh, I mean, we fought, certainly used more lethal and precision ordnance than was used in uh, in World War One, and I don't know if the I don't actually know if uh, if the frequency of warfare in Afghanistan and Iraq or those two places combined, uh, it, it would be interesting to me 
wouldn't it? If you could just think about this, what if an experiment was done where you tried to figure out a way in which, like, remember I told you about the, the alleged remote viewing detector detector kind of thing. Right. Right. So it's had supposedly, uh, although I've never been able to find a physicist who would, who agreed with it. Uh, so because you're measuring less than microvolts of a human energy. And as we know, we're, we're saying you're not projecting there, right? You're just detecting and decoding from here because it's omnipresent. So yeah, it's, it's as if there's, again, I'm just, there's a very crude, there's a very, what if you could do that? What if you could actually decide a way or build a way to filter out all of the other ambient noise, but the noise of conflict? however you would define that, right? And then see that as a measurement, to me would be fascinating. Look, there have been, there have already been measurements of the ability for a, a global resonant effect of people. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> and people that are listening can go find this. Uh, I can't remember what it was called, but there is a way, and one day I gave a lecture in Vancouver, and there were, geez, I think there were ne nearly 10,000 people in this lecture. I wasn't the only guy talking, obviously. He didn't come to see me, just me, but I was there, and I had my hour. And during that hour, I started it with something that kind of freaked people out because I had them all stand up, and I had them all connect hands, <clears throat> which was weird because... That meant people on the ends of the rows had to hold one hand and reach over and hold the other hand to connect the other rows. Uh, and even the people on the sidelines were asked to get into the mix and touch, right? Uh, or hold hands of the people. So there was a continuous chain of humanity right there. And this was, this was in 2003 or four. So the war was already ongoing. And what I did was I led this group of 10,000 people through kind of a, a guided meditation, which took all of like five minutes. But the intent of the meditation was to focus all of their minds on this idea of a peace and, and trying to, you know, kind of conflict resolution verbiage. It was getting them all like, not kick their asses. It was getting to this point, it was all, you know, of getting past that and of trying to put love and connection uh, into that equation. And then you could go to this place that was online that was conducting this measurement and there was a spike of 10,000 people joining together in a conscious purpose caused a spike. Uh, not visible to the naked eye, <laughs> but when it was just, you know, zeroed in on like a Google Earth Pro or something, zeroed in on you could see the spike on the measurement device and what were, they, what were they measuring again they were measuring uh concentrations of waveform by whatever source uh in in that electrostatic field right this okay so, so electromagnetic radiation basically within the capacitor between the, the negative ionic charge and the positive positive ionic charge the that yeah so like radio waves so there'd be, it'd be like a big amplitudinal spike or you know, amplitude spike except because it's looking for 
broad spectrum wave of anything, what's there, then they were filtering out certain things that they didn't want to see, like, you know, solar waves or that kind of stuff. It, you know, cosmic rays, things like that. A band of what they were trying to observe. And I, as I understood it, I never was able to sit down with them, but I would have liked to, I would have liked to have understood precisely what the bandwidth that they were looking at was, but it was forwarded to people and explained to people that we are looking at, we're looking at the waveform expressed by global consciousness. So looking at the waveform, like if there were a concentration of people being like-minded in a certain way, it should be perceivable. That was the thesis, right? And then the, ex the experimentation was, yeah, it is. And it's perceivable over prolonged and contracted, high amplitude, low amplitude, depending on where it came from. And of course, this now got, you know, it could be interfered with like football games and, you know, basketball games and all those kinds of things where people get like-minded about one thing. So, which is why what they were interested in is people coming together with a purpose, like a targeted purpose, right? An impassioned purpose, shall we say all together, all thinking the same way, all, you know, all listening to the same language and then maybe interpreting that language and their thoughts in a certain way, can we measure that? And the, the truth of it was, yes, they can. They can measure it. Now, that goes back to Bentoff and others talking about, okay, so now if you can do that, it shows that all thoughts are, can be expressed in a waveform. So now what does that mean to us? How does it affect us? How does the waveform expression of war or chaos or hatred, or murder, all these things, large scale, low scale, how do they affect us? Well, they do affect us. And there is a cumulative effect, which is why all of these, all of these masters, all of these people preaching mastery and are talking about being responsible for yourself in the moment. They're all saying that, but they don't have the bigger scientific picture about what that is and why. So you're not able to tell somebody why they're, they're supposed to be doing this. Eckhart Tolle and I taught at the Omega Institute uh, <clears throat> years back. He's still there. And uh, I remember because I was there at the same time, I, as another instructor, I walked, I went and walked into the back of the room and kind of leaned against the wall just to listen to his message, which I found really, I mean, I found it interesting. To me, it wasn't new news, but uh, to a lot, it was new news. It was, you know, the power of now. And, and his entire delivery is about that. In fact, in order to bring people back consciously now, he has a, a bell that he rings, which was, it means a lot in a place like that. To me, it was, yeah. And to you or most listeners, it would be like, okay, quit ringing the bell. But he was ringing the bell to get people's focus back to right now. Stop wandering and worrying about lunch or damn it, did I lock the car or, you know, et cetera. He would ring the bell occasionally. And I think he was reading the faces of the audience. Now there was a Q and A after, as he was talking and stuff. And he was like day one and a half into a five day deal. And there was a microphone positioned at the center aisle. And if people had a question, they were supposed to walk up to the microphone and ask the question. So there was a line of people standing behind the microphone. And people were talking about, you know, clarifications and, you know, understanding more, uh, more perfectly what he had been teaching for a day and a half. 
And finally, uh, a woman in her 60s, I would estimate, gets up to the microphone and, and she says, look, are you ever going to get off what you've been talking about and get on to the next thing? Are you ever going to like move on in this? And he just picks his bell up, ding, 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 like this, you know, and everybody in the place got it except her, uh, which was, then you missed everything that I've been saying. Stop worrying about what's coming next. Listen to what I'm saying you to you now and understand the power of now. How, if you're focused on that, how different you can make your life. Same thing, it's like the landmark form. I think I mentioned this to you. It's like, if, if you understand what's going on in the landmark form, it's all about what the whole teachings of Eckhart Tolle are about, I mean, not Eckhart Tolle, of uh, Warner Earhart, are about the emotion and the energy that you give to things as they be, are part of your reality. And because they're only part of your reality for a fleeting moment, and then they're gone as you experience them in that moment, it's gone. Now, if, if you continue to resonate with that, the theory, the, the quantum mechanical theory is that the next potential, the next potential, the next potential all start to drift in because of they're, they're trying to line up based on a, they wanna resonate sympathetically with the frequency that, of energy and how you're resonating in the moment. And this is, it's a fundamental idea that if you choose, uh, if you choose to resonate chaos or anger or hatred, that you're going to create more chaos and anger and hatred. You're not going to create it. It's just out there in an infinite field of potentials, but you're going to mm -hmm. drive the moment into it. Right. And it's going to start lining up for you. Grasping that notion is for me, from a scientific perspective, made far more sense than, you know, than reading books and listening to all these spiritual teachers who never looped it together for me. That's not to say that they didn't find their audience because clearly they did. I mean, people, people, you know, flocked to listen to Eckhart Tolle talk about what he's talking about. Uh, and I don't know necessarily if people, you know, flock to remote viewing, but these kinds of concepts are taught in it. And uh, they're taught in it because I want you to understand that if you're going to embrace this and do it, you need to understand where it comes from and why you're able to do what you're at. I'm telling you you're able to do. Otherwise, you're just accepting what I'm telling you uh, on faith. And you're believing everything that I'm telling you you're going to be able to do based on what just the belief that what I'm going to say to you is true. I want you to understand the science behind it. And I'm not going to give it, I'm not going to interpret the science for you uh, as it might be in a physics class, right? As I've been or others have been. I'm going to give it to you in a way that I think, you know, the general population can understand it because that's what's in the room often trying to struggle with this stuff. And we were talking earlier, you know, there are people that are, are they're massively successful in life, right? Financially but they have no intimacy in their life. They don't understand how to resonate with that frequency. They're mm -hmm. so resonating with the business of making money that they, they give nothing to anything else, whether it's to the love of children or the love of a wife or 
you know, all that that entails. And then that whole piece comes crashing down around them because they gave it nothing. They gave it no energy. They gave it no frequency, right? They gave it no amplitude. Uh, and in so doing, they just caused that wave to flatten for the other person in the relationship with them. And that's why a lot of these coaches exist, which is to give them tools and, you know, understandings from a interpersonal communication perspective about how to bring that connection, that waveform back again. And it absolutely is a waveform. <laughs> so it's, it can be felt, right? It can be felt, the love between you and your wife can be felt without physical touch. It can be felt, right? It can be felt just in a look. It can be felt in the voice. It can be felt in a presence. Of course it can be felt and it can be transmitted and received or not, right? Uh, well, it's it, like being in a, in a crowd before a riot. Like you can feel it. Very good example. Yeah. Right. You can feel it before it's going to happen and you kind of know. Building and building. Uh, yeah. And, and even in, in combat situations, as you know, you can feel it building. You can feel it. Uh, it's why you see. Uh, it's, it's one reason why police officers come into the classes a lot, because uh, they survive on the streets intuitively quite often. Um, my son is a police officer. He's a command sergeant major in the military police corps, but he's also a police officer, a detective. And uh, when he was a patrol officer, he relayed a story for me one time of uh, him chasing some suspects out of a metro building and they ran around a corner and there were two of them and he was, of course, radioing for backup. <clears throat> but he got to the corner and he saw him disappear around the other corner and he stopped. Something said, something in him said, stop. He didn't know why. He didn't, you know, it all depends on your modality of perception. He didn't hear anything. He didn't, you know, see anything. He just felt it stop. He didn't understand what that was. But then an old, old uh, gentleman of color came from around the corner and said to him, he goes, don't go, don't go around there. He goes, they got, they have guns and there's about eight of them and they're waiting for you to come around the corner. They're going to kill a cop. Don't go around that corner. There's an ambush. And then this guy just keeps walking. And my son was like, okay. You know, he, my son was disappointed that people would actually hate a police officer enough to lay in wait to kill them when he saw his life at that time as being in service to all of them and upholding the law, et cetera. But that's what happens. And it was touching to me to see someone so pure in their passion and their motive for doing what they were doing, truly seeing themselves as a protector of them, right? And upholding the law. And then to think that the people that he was protecting would be willing to kill him like that so savagely, right? It was, for him, it was a big, awakening you know, point of number one, why did that happen? Because he honestly said, I had not ever had an experience like that before, where I just suddenly knew I had to stop and I don't understand what it was. I'm like, Mike, what do you think I, you know, what do you think I teach <laughs> you know, all the time? Oh, that's it. And that's why, you know, soldiers 
sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, law enforcement, state, federal, local, whatever it is, they all, you know, live by these feelings. And in the medical profession, surgeons and doctors and other things, they don't, many of them would never admit it, but that's why there's such a large demographic in remote viewing training. Why? Because they understand that there is the medical interpretation of what they're doing and the science that backs that up. But they also understand that it is not an absolute, especially medicine is not an absolute. And every patient is different. And many of them believe in God, right? So they cannot ever find themselves putting things in simple absolute boxes. They, they understand that interpreting a human being is part of their job, even though they have to express it in a science. They have to find the test. They have to find the, you know, the diagnostic. They have to find the imagery. They have to find, you know, the colleague conference on what's, what's going on with this patient. And even so, there's still many, many, many of them that understand that there's a spiritual connection and a spiritual, you know, understanding. It's why they'll tell family to come in and they'll say prayers aloud. I mean, they don't, it's because they don't really have a reference for other things that are going on. But if someone is, you know, circling the drain in our parlance, uh, they will tell family to be there, to be around them, to, you know, this person could come out of this. And so you need to be around there and you need to be whispering and praying and talking and touching, you know, and because that will make it, th they're not gone yet. And Actually, there's no reason for them to be gone yet. They, you, you could bring them back, but they need to fight their way back. So get in there and help them. Now, I, I would be willing to, to venture a number and say, I'll bet you that eight out of 10 physicians would say that to a family, given that yeah. scenario. Eight out of 10, without question. I mean, I've known some very arrogant ones who would step back and go, I would never say something like that. Okay, you wouldn't. Got it. You know? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a strange world. This, you know, we find ourselves in, I I've told you about skeptics before. I just want to tell one more story and then we'll maybe segue into another teaching point here is that, and I'm going to paraphrase this considerably. Michael Shermer <laughs> was, a is one of the skeptics in this world that I, 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 I really respect him for a lot of things. And I'll explain why he's, he's a guy that started off in going to college, uh, studying theology. And he, he had, I don't know what he intended to do with it down the road, uh, mm -hmm. be a priest or a minister or something, but he was in there. He was a Christian and he wanted to know more about God and Christ. And that's what he was doing. The only thing he skidded out of that for was because as I recall, he had to, he had to learn to speak Aramaic, Hebrew, and Sanskrit, and, you know, read Sanskrit and stuff like that. And he had no interest in doing no interest in doing that. So he changed majors over to psychology. And when he got into psychology, he got into experimental psychology, and he got to see a lot of experimentation and the results. And that was one of the places where he started to kind of get this jaundice view of things beyond the physical. Why? Because 
they were measuring people who were making a lot of claims that were either uns typically unsubstantiated, delusional kinds of claims. And you see that a lot. And then that you see enough of that. And then you begin to be that way yourself. You start to see, you start to see trickery, you start to see illusion, you start to see ulterior motive and all these different things. And when that happens, it changes the lens through which you see the rest of humanity. And everything sort of kind of fits within that lens. After he graduated with a PhD in psychology, I think experimental psychology, he went, he actually rode competitive, he was a, became a competitive cyclist. He looks like an athlete, became a competitive cyclist for like 10 years. And during the time that he was that competitive cyclist, he was also part of this, uh, you know, this uh, psychop, which I think is uh, something for the investigation of paranormal, something, whatever it is. This was the thing that I told you, I think was, this is the greatest, you know, group of skeptics that have come together. And most of them, oddly, it has an, it has an overwhelming number of former magicians that are now part of it. Because why? Because they equate everything that's being done as an illusion. And if they can, if, if you say that you can bend the spoon, like you're a yeller or Bert Stubblebein, and they can create an illusion that says, here's how that, you know, look, I can do it too. So if they can make an illusion, then their description of what you're doing is it's an illusion. You're just putting the trick out there. And Even that's though there's more, more than one way to do one thing, right? Exactly. But that's not within their reasoning cycle. So <laughs> there were four of these guys that called themselves the four, four horsemen of the apocalypse for reason. If they caught somebody that was not living within the rules of humility of their ability or scientific understanding of the, or explanation of the ability, et cetera, if you stepped outside the bounds or the lines, like I always throw out for remote viewing students, not 100% accurate, never has been, never will be. So don't ever, don't ever step up and say it is. Never trust the results of a single remote viewer operating independently of other remote viewers. So by God, don't ever step up and say, you remotes viewed the end of the world. And so therefore, you know, everybody be afraid because I'm telling you it's happening. Well, no kidding. Or, and three, that it must always be used if it's used properly in consonance with other methodologies, other research or investigative diagnostic or something else. Now, does that mean you can't remote use remote viewing for yourself? No, it just means that those three rules apply no matter what. And if you're going to take it outside the confines of doing a blind target or double blind target, then you must be courageous enough and honest enough to say, my findings are experiential. They're experiential, therefore anecdotal. They are not, I cannot stand up and tell you their, their level of accuracy. And I certainly, I, I did it by myself. So it's an it's experiential. It's an experience, and I'm I'm describing it anecdotally. Can you do that for yourself? Of course you can, as long as you remember rule number one, two, and three. <laughs> you know, as long as you remember that, and you don't start turning around telling people whatever it is you did. So that is what's taught, and that is really critical to do. But back to my to Michael Shermer. So. He get he writes also he the in the skeptical he writes for the skeptical inquirer I think that he founded it 
And he also uh, used to write the skeptic perspective for Scientific American. This is where I actually kind of fell in love with this guy's <laughs> what he's doing because of how he presents presented some of the stuff. And I could find my own skeptic interpretation of his skepticism because I come from a different perspective. Now, I wanted to share this with your listeners because, and you can go find the whole article. It was in uh, Scientific American. He wrote it. He gets married. He's getting married to a woman from Germany. And wherever their house is, I, it doesn't matter. But a, a box of stuff comes from her family in Germany, which includes a transistor radio that her grandfather used to listen to sports and or music and stuff like that on. And she always has a remembrance of that happening. And she is connected with that. And that radio connects her to her grandfather. And she's as skeptical as he is, according to him in this article. And so he said, I just thought, because this she said the radio didn't work, that I would spend some time trying to make this radio work. And I would call back on my engineering prowess and figure this thing out. So he did. He said he looked in, replaced things because it was tubes and, you know, soldered connections, did whatever he needed to do and plugged it in, turned it on. He could get absolutely nothing from it. No response, no heartbeat. Uh, he said, I even subjected it to, what did he call it? Some G-force repair. So meaning he slammed it on the table. He did everything he could to try to figure this thing out and he couldn't get it to work. And he said he spent several hours on it. So he just rolled it up and he put it in the nightstand, top drawer of the nightstand, closed it. Next day, uh, the wedding is to commence. Some people stay up in the house and other people go down to a place below the house, as I pictured it in my mind, where the actual wedding congregation was and where our wedding party. And then, you know, his wife was going to walk to be is going to walk down an aisle between these two large rows of seating. She does that. The wedding happens. They all come back up to the house to begin, you know, the, the after party. What do they call it? There's, there's a name for that. <laughs> I've gotten um, Doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 Who would think of it? I mean, I mean there's usually like a rehearsal dinner beforehand, but not. Uh, that didn't happen though, I know. Not for his story anyway, but they came back yeah. up with a party. A reception, it's called a reception. The wedding yeah. reception. So at the wedding reception, when, he wa when everybody walks in, there's music playing. And so everybody's looking around, people are checking their phones, people are over opening up their iPads, looking at the iPad, or, I mean, their laptops. Everybody's looking around like, what the hell? What the hell? You know, where's this coming from? And his children in the story said that actually started the minute she took her first step down the aisle. It started and it hasn't stopped. So Michael continues his quest to find the source of the music armed with this idea. It started as soon as she walked down the aisle and he goes into the master bedroom and he hears it and he walks over. He pulls open the drawer, top drawer. And it's the transistor radio that her grandfather used to use. And now it's playing music, the kind of music he used to listen to. So he just picks it up and sets it on the nightstand there. 
doesn't do anything else to it and closes the drawer. And he said, he let his wife now know that that was happening. And he said, my skepticism was really, really challenged <laughs> at this time. Well, I mean, uh, just really dumb question. Was it, what was its power source? Like batteries plugged in? He doesn't say that, that I recall in the article. I'm assuming that given the age of what it was, it could have either, either been D cell or it could have been, you know, DC. Mm -hmm. uh, but to me, it, it wouldn't have mattered because, I mean, it doesn't matter to the story because the story is this guy who's so certain of his scientific understanding of things, tries to get a radio to work, can't get it to work, puts it in a drawer, dismissing it, right, and walks away. And his own children say, from a previous marriage, go, as soon as whatever her name was, started walking down the aisle, this started. So he said they listened to it. They couldn't believe it, but they left it on all night long, and it stopped at, I think he said, 6 a.m. the next morning. It stopped. And, I mean, he didn't go beyond that to try to explain why. He just said that thing did not work. No matter what I did, it did not work. And I don't understand why it came on because I just don't understand. I can't explain it. And he was not willing to call it a coincidence, which I found odd. Uh, and he admitted that it challenged his skepticism completely to the core. And uh, he let us all comfortably be with that without him turning around and going, all right, I'm a convert now to everything, you know, esoteric and outside because he's not. Uh, which is one of the reasons I like him. I, I mean, I like the fact that he challenges things and I like his progression through life. Uh, and I do. I respect him a lot. I've never had the pleasure to meet him. I think he can sometimes be one-sided in things, but I suggest that I'll bet you he's not so one-sided now. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he'll call fraud a fraud, but I'll bet you he's not so one-sided about the waveform expression of all things and how that how that can be something he and i both we share a lot of the same views in terms of you know why he is not embracing the theological you know even though it's a polytheological perspective that we have in our country he doesn't embrace that he doesn't embrace it anymore and actually neither do i but it's just because i have read too much you know i i know too much about it so i and I was part of it as a high priest, right? So it uh, doesn't matter what denomination it is. I, I understand what the mission is there. I get it. I mean, so. I, I don't know if I should put this out there, but I will. It doesn't matter. Like my, my whole view of organized religion is that there are a certain set of core truths that are about kind of what's, be, you know, what's beyond the physical, okay? But over time as those core truths tr truths much like an analytical overlay in remote viewing as you're you know moving from kind of an eight, you know, eight dimensions of and I, I i was actually my second question way back when um like where you know what 
Y eight dimensions and things like that. But as you're as you're transforming higher dimensions into lower dimensions, so from eight to four to two, there is an there is a necessary loss of information in the transfer. An inherent loss. I, yeah. I, I don't know that it's necessary. It's inherent. Yeah. Or I think yes yeah, I, yes I yes um yeah 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 it's not yeah it's not that it's necessary it's just that it's going to happen because it just doesn't you don't have the the dimensions to capture all that information so you have to let some of it go but what you have with organized religion is there's there's that translation from that dimensional translation at the source but then you also have loss over time as um, you know, this, this kind of diluted and uh, dilute, not, yeah, dil, um, diluted information is passed on. It's like the, um, what's that test when you whisper to the person in your ear, the, uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about that, uh, something game. I get it. Yeah. It's, uh, the telephone game, the telephone game telephone game. Yeah. And, and then what happens is you also have there's a science fiction writer. His name's Jerry Pornell. He has this, this law called the iron law of bureaucracy. And what the iron law of bureaucracy says is that over time, when organizations, you know, an organization forms for a distinct purpose, which is X. Okay. But over time, as that organization gets larger, the purpose of the organization is no longer about X the purpose of the organization is to perpetuate the organization, yes. right? And so what I think religion suffers from is first you have that initial sense of truth. So you get a, you know, a dilution of information from a dimensional perspective, and you get a dilution of information and a twisting of information from that telephone game sort of perspective through, through the ages and then the third piece is over time, as that organization expands and broadens um, its teachings, it um, it becomes more about the survival of the organization than it does about what the central purpose of the organization. And I'm not saying like there's no malintent. It's just that's what tends to happen because there are certain core truths that go through every single organized religion. But um, again, you, you you have to kind of determine you have to kind of determine these things from a you have to know for yourself as opposed to to believe. Exactly, exactly. the The intent of the organization is to is to do just as you said to perpetuate the existence of the organization. And they know that in order to do that, there's only a certain level in which they can allow the masses to gravitate toward. So it becomes this circulatory pablum that they give, these teachings, which are circular. They're cyclic in nature. They don't ever go up higher than a certain place. And you're not allowed, at least in the church that I was in as a high priest, you're not allowed to think beyond that threshold. There are only certain, they actually establish within the religion these constraints called keys, meaning that despite the fact that you are a high priest, you do not have the keys to think at this level. So don't. 
And that meant that when you start looking at Sunday school manuals, which I did over the decades that I taught it, and my classes were favored classes. People loved to come to them because, you know, I, I got people engaged. I had like Hershey's kisses and, you know, you answer a question right or wrong, get a kiss, you know, get a Hershey's kiss. Get it. So that and I could put anecdotally things together to make it make sense to people often. And I loved it, whether they were scriptorians or whether they were just people sitting there staring at me, it didn't matter. But I, I understood like year three, looking at it going, this is the same thing for, this is the same thing. It's this year, it'll be like lesson number four next in last year, it was lesson number 54. And the week, year before that, it was lesson, you know, number 41. And they're just cycling the same thing around. It's the same thing. And they're changing the pictures in the manual. And they're slightly changing the perspective or the point being made in that particular event to all come to essentially the same and interpretive conclusion. Uh, and it started to grate on me about that. And then I started to learn that at being in the presidency, that that the talk topics that you were giving people see in the Mormon church they don't have a they don't have a paid clergy, so the bishopric would go out and and say you know hey brother or sister or so and so we would we would like to offer the opportunity to speak next week we'd like your talk on the wall of tithing or on you know give a testimony about. Uh, family home evening or the, all these things which are tenants of that church and so people would do that and and then i started figuring out you would have think i would have given more thought to it in the beginning and i just didn't because i was not yet to the point where i felt hypocritical in the doing all of all of it but i started to see that the talk topics that are given are never things that are, lift the congregation up to another level they are all to, meant to keep you at a certain state of understanding uh, and to limit your ability to go beyond that. And every other organized religion that I'm aware of does exactly that. Few, if any of them, are ever something that wants you to explore beyond, to come to a new meaning and to commune with the creator on your level, to establish that relationship and to understand that relationship and to bring that into your home and your family, right? And to do that. If I were to tell you one thing- Well, there is, there is one, I'm not gonna mention it, but it costs you. Oh, and in that church, in the Mormon church, yeah. in order to be, uh, to be considered worthy to go- By the way, to be clear, it wasn't the Mormon church. It was another one, oh. but I'll, I'll tell you offline. Yeah. yeah. So to be considered worthy to go to the temple, in other words, to hold a temple recommend, uh, you had to be a full tithe payer, meaning 10% of your salary had to go to the church. If you weren't paying 10%, you were not full tithe payer, tear up your temple recommend, and you weren't going to go to the temple to do the work that's in the temple. So it, it is a business is what it is. It's a business. And, and I get that. But it also, I know that it, it offers... It offers comfort to people, mm -hmm. as all, all religions do on some level to people. Uh, it offers a sanctuary from the week. Uh, it offers, you know, to a degree, spiritual guidance and uplifting. In that particular church, it has its 
you know, its own welfare programs and all those kinds of things. It's very fancy. It adds stability to civilization. Right? It's a stabilizer. Well, until it's not, right? Well, yeah, there's some, 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 I would not, say. It does. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, marching into, uh, you know, Christians marching in the Crusades. <laughs> yeah, not so stable. You know, to say, you know, your prophet didn't actually do what he says he did 650 years after, what was it, 650? 650 years after, you know, ours was crucified kind of thing. So all those things, uh, I get it. I get it. And I'm not denouncing it as I know you're not just, I'm just explaining my position with it. And I understand from the level of the things that I'm talking about, at least for me, that it, I think it, I'm looking on a larger scale from just the human humanity scale. If, if, we are born with these things, with these gifts, and we have this neural capacity. Clearly, we were designed by whatever designed us and put us here for a purpose that exceeds where we are right now. And now maybe the intent is we're supposed to find our way over the next thousand years. I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, I just know that I think that the greatest gift that came out of these scriptures that we're talking about was the fact that humanity had free agency. That was the greatest. Yeah. That well, another another random story. So when I was six years old, I, you know, I went to Catholic school, and we used to have to come home and memorize the answers to. You know, subsequently I, I learned it's the the Baltimore Catechism. So I was a Catholic kid, and there was this one question, and my dad used to, you know, help me help me out with this. It was, why did God make you? And I still remember, God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world so I could be happy with him forever in heaven. And six years old, my dad said, how do you know that's true? And I said, uh, you know, I was kind of taken aback. I said, because Sister George said so. And he's like, how does she know? And I'm like, uh, and it, you know, it, it kind of shattered my worldview at six years old, but he's like, and I don't like my, my dad is a, he was like a math. He's like high school. He was a high school math teacher and, um, you know, very direct and like didn't mince words and not very philosophical. And it's like, where did that come from? But it really, it really underscores why it's important that you know for yourself rather than just accept what, somebody's telling you now part of learning and operating in the world is that you you have to do a lot of that um, in order to just get by because if you question everything you're not going to get anywhere right but in the most important questions where there's the least evidence i would say or the least concrete physical evidence because you're talking about something beyond the physical right so by definition you don't have physical or you know, a proxy for physical evidence. It's important to to ask these questions and try to understand. So, it yeah, it is. It very much is. Um, I, you know, I think that in terms of just some quantum mechanical interpretations provided to help people understand what viewers are doing, uh, I think that's probably sufficient. And if they wanted to know more take a class and, I, and I'm not trying to sell the classes. No, but and you've done, I think you've done like six episodes. So if someone wants to learn more, 
and wants to take a class, where should they go? Well, first of all, I think you have to decide if remote viewing is for you because I don't think that it's necessarily for everybody. Remember what I've been saying, if you're gonna learn coordinate remote viewing, or some people are calling it applied remote viewing, controlled remote viewing, unless they've changed the structure, it's all coordinate remote viewing. That was what we were using as a military intelligence collection tool. Where they get it uh, is up to them. If they want to get the science and the why, the explanation of why, I do that. If uh, there are others that try to do it, like there's uh, the Core Potentials Academy up in Vancouver, Canada. I don't know if they're going to teach remote viewing again, but when they do, or if they do, uh, I have a very good friend who was a former vice president of Sony Music. His name is David Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S. David and I are really good friends, and he teaches it precisely like I do. He even uses my slides. He, he speaks like I do when he teaches it, only better probably. Um, there is uh, our remote viewing Europe, RVEU. Uh, <clears throat> that is based out of uh, Zurich, Switzerland. And the guy that's doing it is Johan Miklason. And Johan and I were, are very good friends when I first got out of the army. I uh, was kind of uh, his roommate, with, he and I and his, his girlfriend, we were roommates in, in, uh, in Göteborg, Sweden, where I taught a lot of Swedish and, and Norwegian people how to be remote viewers. Uh, he has a good class. It's set up as a learning management system. Uh, it's basically taking that book, the Remote Viewing Complete User's Guide to Coordinate Remote Viewing, which was the manual that I wrote. Uh, and that's basically that. Uh, now, when the class reaches a certain level, I, I am in there weekly talking with them for several hours and then punch out. Uh, you can, they could go to Clubhouse, uh, which is the, the, tele, the, the phone app. It has the, the, the club, the group that I speak to has over 3,000 members in it. Uh, doesn't mean all 3,000 are there at one time, but there are 3,000 right. members in it. And we, you can ask questions and I'll give long in context answers. That's the thing that I typically do on Friday nights. It starts Friday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern daylight time. Uh, and I usually talk for anywhere from 10 to 15 hours a night. Uh, they could go to davidmorehouse.com. Again, uh, I, don't, I don't really know what goes on there. My recommendation would, would be don't sign up for the online training class. And by that, I mean, like the sign up for the pay, go as you go at your own pace, because it's the recorded version, because there's no interaction, right? Recorded yeah. class. And everybody I've talked to, I mean, I guess some people like it, but I, everybody I've talked to on Clubhouse really struggle with it. So, and if you become a regular on Clubhouse, you get a big discount on it, just because we want, I'm not doing it for profit. I mean, I am not, I just, I have my own businesses. I do other stuff, right? Uh, contra contractually wise and stuff. So I'm doing this because I feel it's important. And I actually wasn't ever going to do it again, Sean. I was like, you know, around 2004, I just kind of disengaged from it. And, uh, and then this guy, Ted Abramson, I told you, got me interested in Clubhouse. He was like, you got to do this. 
I don't want to do it. You got, you got to do this. I don't want to do it. I'm busy. No, you got to do this. And I got on it and I just really love once again, you know, kind of live interaction with people asking questions because not only did it get me to start sparking up my brain again about that stuff where my brain was getting kind of narrow with, you know, medical stuff and all of that, that I, I, I it started to make me, I, I loved it again. I mean, it became a, an impassioned intention again to start getting the, the, the message out, which is why I jumped at the opportunity to come here because I, I knew you would, you would make this a complete uh, interview and presentation to people and not just some, you know, not, uh, well, we got to pack it into an hour. Well, we wouldn't be able to pack it into an hour, you know, right. would be worthless. So, which is why I don't do that. So the fact that you were, you know, open to doing this and you wanted to do this for your listeners, it, I think, I know it's a lot of work for you, but it's going to be a great, you're giving them a great gift, all your listeners and all you listeners, uh, support this guy, you know, with your likes, loves, and whatever that is required, because not a lot of people will do what he did to get this information to you. Uh, we could get, so I wanted to tell you that and express my gratitude for that and, and, and acknowledge, you, you know, your courage, your courage and your willingness to do it because not a lot of people would, uh, back to the physics. I mean, if you want to know more, I can, you know, we've already talked about books you can read uh, if you want to know more. And there, if you want more explanation about it, come to, you know, come to a remote viewing class, come to one I teach. The ones I teach that are going to be like Zoom classes, uh, those are at the davidmorehouse.com website. They're listed there. Next Zoom class kind of thing. So you can see what that is. Or you can find some of my former colleagues out there. Uh, I can tell you that some of them are charging upwards of five, $6,000, $7,000 for stuff. And I think their normal things are like around $2,500. I will say to you, be wary of some of the charlatans that are out there that are claiming to be remote viewers. They're using the term coordinate remote viewing or controlled remote viewing or applied remote viewing. And the truth of it is you have to look for the pedigree who trained them. Uh, and understand that because as, as Sean and I've been talking and telling you guys is that every interpretation loses something and loses something and loses something. So you want to try to get as close to the apple tree for a teacher as you can, uh, whomever that is. Uh, and then I am certain that you will get value out of it. It will change you in ways you won't expect it to change you, but it will change you. All right. Well, David, thank you very much. And uh, I definitely at some point in the future will very likely have you on again. Uh, we'll talk afterwards about, you know, ways to, ways to do that, but I appreciate it. And I hope everyone enjoyed the episode, like, and subscribe, by the way, I need subscribers. So thank you again. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Sean. If you enjoyed this video, Hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.